Well, do turn back with me to Revelation 1 and verse 9. Uh, and can I just say, it's been a great joy for Margie uh, and me to be here uh, during this week. Um, we came feeling we hardly knew anybody, and we leave feeling we know quite a lot of people. I'm afraid it's not everybody. Uh, we've talked to quite a lot, but not every individual. We're sorry about that, but we rejoice in uh, all that we have uh, heard. It's been very inspiring. It's been very challenging. Uh, it's been a great reminder of the need of this world and of the scope of the work that God is doing in all sorts of places. Uh, it's been very instructive to us and very helpful to us. So if it's blessed nobody else, it's blessed us. So we're glad we've been here. Now, we've seen together so far three remarkable encounters between God and man, Moses and the burning bush in the desert, uh, Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up upon the throne, and we saw the disciples uh, encountering the risen Lord on the beach. But in many ways, the most spectacular of all descriptions uh, may well be this one in Revelation 1. But you'll notice it begins with a man, a real man, I, John. And there are four things we discover about him. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I, John, it's quite a name, the Apostle John, uh, one of the twelve, uh, one of the first of the disciples called by the Lord, uh, one of the inner three that the Lord on special occasions seems to have taken with him, one who went up the Mount of Transfiguration, one who was in Gethsemane. And remarkably, the one who describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. A witness of the resurrection. An author of the gospel. And we wouldn't want to do without John's gospel, would we? Uh, and the author, of course, of his three letters. And as far as we know, the, the longest lived of all the apostles. Uh, this is, we could say, a very special man. If we were invited to a meeting that John was speaking at, we would have been eager to be there. What a great man. And yet what he says himself is rather different. You see, he is actually a humble man. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. He doesn't come as one who comes as a superior being. He doesn't come as one who's had so much more experience of the Lord than we have, though we may say he did. That isn't how he speaks of himself or thinks of himself. In fact, there is no trace of his own importance. And I think if you've really seen how great Jesus is, you won't speak of how great you are. I think it's as simple as that. 
that if we really see him, we don't make much of ourselves anymore. And if we make much of ourselves, then we haven't really seen him well enough. A humble man and an honest man. Uh, he's not trying to package, and we live in a society where everything is packaged and sold and presented in ways that are trying to allure us to think this is a wonderful idea. Uh, this uh, expresses a magnificent lifestyle. If only we had that car or wore you know, th th those particular diamonds or those, th those particular trainers, you know, we'd rival Usain Bolt, or perhaps we mightn't, but we'd look great. Uh, etc., etc. Everything is being sold over the top to try to persuade us. But this man, what does he speak of? Your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Are you trying to put us off, John? No, he's just telling us the truth. Honest men tell the truth. Uh, and these three things, the suffering or tribulation, the kingdom and the patient endurance are bonded together in this verse. In the Greek, there is one article, one the. The suffering kingdom and patient endurance. It's one package, as it were. They come together. They're not like a menu. You know, I think I'll have the kingdom, thank you, not the suffering. That might be how we would have approached it, but that is not on offer. Uh, what John is saying is that this is my experience, but this will also be your experience because this is an experience that is ours in Jesus. Every true disciple, equally ours, the suffering as much as the kingdom and the patient endurance as much as the kingdom. We've been thinking, haven't we, about the, the orchid and the stone in Christian ministry. It's almost as though he's saying there's an orchid between two stones. There's suffering on one side and there's patient endurance on the other. But you can't have the kingdom unless you're prepared to take them all in Jesus. They're all ours in Jesus. That is what it means to follow Jesus in this world, and the, the Bible never lies, and the apostles didn't lie, and Jesus didn't lie, and we must not. John was on Patmos, we read in verse 9. That sounds rather nice, doesn't it? But it wasn't a holiday island, a Greek island that was actually a, the Romans used as a prison island. And he was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was there on account of his faith and boldness in speaking about Jesus. Uh, and this morning, there are believers in prison because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And there are believers facing uh, tribulation today and some facing death today because of the word of God and the, tribulation, uh, and the testimony of Jesus. And John would not be surprised at all. He expects us to suffer he expects us to reign with Christ, seated already in the heavenly realms, seeing something of God's kingdom coming in, the amazing power of God's grace in the gospel, and yet also patiently enduring in this sinful, fallen, rebellious world, fighting even 
uh, our own sinful natures until that day. That's the deal. But it's coming, brothers and sisters. It's coming. A humble man. An honest man. And a God-centered man. Verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Uh, he was there a prisoner, but they couldn't stop him praying. It's rather wonderful, isn't it? Uh, I hope at every human level never to be in prison. But I do know this, that were I, nobody could prevent me praying. Uh, and here is a man, it seems, giving his heart and mind to God. He sought the Lord. He was in spiritual communion. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I think, I hope that's why we've been here at this conference, because we want to be God-centered people. And we don't just want to be God-centered in a conference setting, do we? That isn't really being God-centered. We all know of the phenomenon of a you know, a wonderful time together and everything is somehow a bit different and special and we're very God-centered for that period. But the real crunch of being God-centered is when you're on the island of Patmos, a prisoner. That's where you need to be God-centered. Or wherever it is that God has put you, graciously it may not yet be a prison, but wherever it will be throughout your whole life and my whole life, we need to be people who are in the spirit on the Lord's day, God-centered and honored. He was just a prisoner, just another statistic in the Roman uh, list of prisoners. But he is an honored man, an extraordinarily honored man. What is the greatest honor? To hear and to see and to know Jesus. And sometimes among the poorest of the poor, you meet those who have the greatest honor, more than any president or prime minister or king or emperor. To be a child of the living God. Uh, I go to India quite a bit and you know that the greatest turning among Indians to the Lord is from the Dalit, the, the untouchables, the lowest class. Uh, the ones whose shadow is considered to be defiling if the shadow of a Dalit falls on you. You curse them. Uh, that dehumanized. Uh, and wonderfully, when the gospel comes to them, they are set free and they discover that in Christ there are huge honors, the greatest honor in the universe. Obituaries are fascinating. Do you ever read obituaries? In every newspaper I read the obituaries. Such interesting people die. Um, uh, you know, I never heard of them. Wow, how did I miss that guy? And yet, very often they're sad, aren't they? Because you read of extraordinary brilliance and great achievements and uh, fantastic, uh, fan extraordinarily interesting people, and yet so many of them have missed the supreme honor. What good is it? What good will it be for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Better to know Jesus than to have all the fame and power and wealth on earth. And so you see that John, I, John, humble, honest, God-centered and honored John, sets us a 
an example, all of us. Uh, we can't be apostles. We can't live in the first century. We're not fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. But please, God, we too can have humble hearts and have an honesty and integrity about us. We can be centered on the Lord and honored in knowing the Lord. And this man, he says, I heard behind me a loud voice, verse 10, and immediately John fades from being the focus. You don't talk about John anymore. It's not that he's not there, but somehow the whole, the whole focus is somewhere else. It is on the one who speaks who takes the center stage. That is reality. You see, the Bible shows us the universe as it really is. You see, we, we often live in dreamland when we're at the center. And in our society, man is at the center. Man in all his variety, making lots of money, winning foot cricket matches, scoring goals, or whatever we consider at the moment incredibly important. And we put those things at the center. And God is more or less irrelevant. That is dream world. In fact, that's nightmare world. And we can even have a Christian version of that where our ministry is at the center. It's all about what we're doing. Yes, it is for the Lord, but it's it's us you need to hear about and what we're doing. But, you know, the reality is that when we see Jesus, there can only be one person at the center. And it's not us. And it's nothing about this world. It's him. God at the center. You see, when you see Jesus, it, it turns this world's values upside down, or if we, we ought to say the right way up, and we see him. And everything else is peripheral. And that's what we need to see. And we're going to see, therefore, two things about Jesus. Firstly, what Jesus is like. There is, firstly, an awesome voice. Verse 10, uh, I heard behind me a, a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. John encounters Jesus uh, in the first place as a voice. I heard. It's, it's rather like the disciples on the beach. They see this dim figure. They can't make him out at all. But what reaches them is the voice. Uh, and ultimately, that's how it is with Jesus. Uh, I turn to see the voice. Interesting concept. Looking at a voice. But the voice was so powerful, he can describe him as, as the voice that he wants to see. And this awesome voice was powerful. We read there in end of verse 10, it was like a trumpet, like a trumpet blast. Not the sort of soothing background music that's playing in the supermarket while you do your shopping. You know, the sort you're not really meant to pay any attention to. It's just to butter you up so you buy more or whatever it is. Um, this is the sort of sound that makes you stop doing everything else. The trumpet blast. And, and yet it's completely coherent. It, it's not just a deafening noise. Uh, John could make out every word. Look, verse 11. Uh, a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. 
which are then listed. He, he, he has an absolutely clear perception of what the voice is saying. Uh, the words of Jesus are always coherent. And it was majestic. Verse 15 tells us that his, uh, his voice was like the sound of rushing or mighty waters. Have you ever been to a really great waterfall? A few weeks ago, Margie and I were at the Victoria Falls. And you know, you, you get out of your car and the first thing that strikes you, you can't see anything. Oh, you can't see the falls. You just hear them. You just hear them. Long before you see them, you can hear them. Because of the roar, because of the thunder of these mighty waters, you hear the roar. And that's what John is saying. It was like the roar of the Niagara Falls. It was like the roar of the Victoria Falls. It was a mighty, mighty, awesome noise. And, and it drowns everything else. And it grabs your attention. And everybody in the locality seems to be heading the same way uh, so that they might see, as it were, the voice. There's something absolutely riveting about that sort of volume. And it's sharp. It's sharp, verse 16. You see, out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. And that isn't a, 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 a metal thing. It, it is an image. Uh, it is language the scriptures use of what God's word is like. Uh, famously, for example, in uh, Hebrews 4.12, in Ephesians 6, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, sharper than you can make a razor blade. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, we are surrounded by words. In fact, our culture is drowning in words uh, on the television, on the, in the newspapers, on the internet, on Facebook, on Twitter, on the mobile phones, on the radio. But you know, the vast majority of those words are insignificant. They are inconsequential. They are trivial. You ever had a newspaper and thrown it away at the end of the day? What we always do with newspapers, anyone, okay, maybe one or two we, we keep because of something extraordinary that happened, but you know, most of those words, they don't count for anything really in the long term. See, the words we're surrounded with are like paper darts, but the words of Jesus are like a metal sword. How stunning that we can speak of having in our hands the word of God. And we can read the words of Jesus. And these are not lightweight words. They're not trivial words. They're not inconsequential words. These are the words that carry life. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Nobody's telling us that apart from the scriptures, apart from Jesus. And all that it will take to raise the dead at the end of time, all it will take is for Jesus to speak. And all it took to create the world was for God to say, let there be light. And there was light. 
The word of God is like that. And the word of God is in our hands. And the word of God can penetrate hearts. And we see something of its power when we see any believer. We see somebody who's come out of light to darkness. Somebody in whose heart the word of God is not just bounced off, but entered in and penetrated too. And we need to be people who have hearts that are ongoingly penetrated by the wonderful life-giving words of Jesus. An awesome, awesome voice. But another feature of what Jesus is like is that here is a personal encounter. Have you ever seen a famous person? Some years ago, maybe about four or five, Margie and I were visiting some friends in Edinburgh and we went for a walk in the park just opposite their house. And uh, as we walked, we began to think there were quite a lot of people about and quite a lot of soldiers about for some reason. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, there was quite a crowd of people. And this you know, wasn't just our ordinary Sunday afternoon walk. Uh, and then there was a car coming along, came right past us. And in the car was the Queen. And she waved at us. Well, she waved at a few other people too. But you know something? She didn't go back home and say, I've just seen Rupert and Margie Bentley Taylor. Uh, no, no, no. Um, it was not a personal encounter. I haven't had a personal encounter with the Queen. But you see, John's encounter was not like that. He wasn't just seeing Jesus at some huge distance in, in part of a great crowd that uh, the, the person who's being looked at could not possibly have known. No, this was a personal encounter. Every true encounter with Jesus is personal. Look in verse 12. I, I turned around to see the voice that was, look at the last three words, really important, that was speaking to me. And the words John heard were, were for him. And in verse 14, uh, it says that his eyes were like blazing fire. How did John know? Well, how would you know what his, anybody's eyes were like? You look into their eyes. They look straight at you. That's how you can tell what somebody's eyes are like. And verse 17, he placed his hand on the next two words, right hand on me. Now, this is a personal encounter. He sees John. He looks at John. He touches John. He deals with John. He sends John to write this letter. Write what you see. You see, Jesus deals with people. He doesn't just deal abstractly with humanity. He, when he died on the cross, it wasn't just for you know, some huge body of humanity. He died on the cross for, for me, for each of us individually. He always deals personally. He sees this crooked tax collector up a tree, and he doesn't say, you there. He doesn't say, crooked tax collector. He says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house for tea. Amazing. You see, he is personally encountering people. And when we become Christians, it isn't just a matter of an abstract body of information we can have all the abstract body of information. It doesn't make us Christians. It is actually to respond to him 
personally. That's how it is to be a Christian. This is eternal life, Jesus said, John 17, 3, that they may know you. He's praying to the Father that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We know Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian. It is to be in a personal relationship. Now, we do not see a burning bush as Moses did. We don't hear an audible voice like he did. Not usually. We don't see a, a vision of the Lord as Isaiah did, though I know sometimes the Lord reveals himself in extraordinary ways to certain individuals with particular problems and issues, particularly it seems in the Middle East and among Muslims. But it's not the normal, it is not the central, it is not the way he reveals himself. We don't yet see him with our own eyes on earth as the disciples and Zacchaeus did. But we have the word of testimony. We have their word of testimony. This is a record of what John saw and is written for me and it's written for you. And Jesus had us in mind when he said to Thomas, who had finally seen him alive, and said, my Lord and my God. Uh, Jesus says, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's us. We've not seen and yet have believed, but one day we shall see. There's nothing wrong with seeing Jesus. One day we shall see. We shall see him in all his glory. We shall see him in the fullness of his majesty. We will see him as John saw him and more. And we can say with that blessed man Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. See, he's not just thinking of a location, he's going to be in heaven. No, something much more. He's going to see God. That is the great personal hope of every believer. So, what is Jesus like? There's an awesome voice. There's a personal encounter, but we cannot escape something else. There is an overwhelming glory. Uh, and you see, it's expressed in a remarkable way in verse 13. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came the sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Of course you would. And you see, this reference to the Son of Man, like a Son of Man, is a very deliberate reference to Daniel chapter 7. Let me just read to you part of Daniel 7, where Daniel saw a vision of the end time. And it says that he, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Let's just listen to this description. His clothing was as white as snow. And the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. 
Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's what John saw too. And the glory of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 is the glory of the Son of Man in Revelation 1. The glory of Jesus is the glory of God. That robe, that head, that hair, white like wool, white as snow, eyes blazing fire, feet bronze glowing in a furnace, face like the sun shining in all its brilliance. There is a brightness too bright for us, isn't there? We turn on the light in our room and it gives us a, a useful light, but we can look at it. it. It's not a frightening light. It's not an overwhelming light. But you go out at midday and look at the sun. Well, you shouldn't, should you? It'll damage your eyes. And we can't even cope with the sun. Imagine the sun of glory. The glory of Christ. Were we to see that in all its fullness, we would not even survive. And John saw this amazing disclosure, verse 17. John didn't run to greet Jesus. I mean, he hadn't seen him since uh, he ascended. Uh, but he didn't run to greet him, to shake his hand, or to hug him, or to do whatever was culturally appropriate. I fell at his feet as though dead. That wasn't good manners. That wasn't politeness. That wasn't etiquette. He had no option. He didn't even choose to. Before the glory of Jesus, we would all fall as dead. Because you see, Jesus today is not lying in a manger in Bethlehem where we, our society sometimes confines him. He is not hanging on a cross in Jerusalem or walking the streets of Galilee. He is radiant with the utterly amazing majesty of God Almighty, unlimited majesty. And before him, every eye, knee must bow because there is no, there's no option. There's no choice. Before his, him, every knee will bow. And before him, we are as nothing. Because you see, Jesus is the center, not us. How could we ever think otherwise? This is what Jesus is like. The awesome voice, the personal encounter the overwhelming glory. And what does Jesus do? What Jesus does? Look, firstly, he shows tender mercy. The, the reality of him is overwhelming. And you see, by verse 17, John is, it looks like a dead man. He is lying on the ground. He's out for the count. What does Jesus do then? Verse 17, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Placed. It's a gentle word, isn't it? Placed. 
you place your hand on somebody. You don't, you don't thrust him. You don't grab him. You don't seize him. You place your hand. There's an awesome gentleness as well as an immensity of power in that description. What a hand. What a gesture. What a gesture of care. What a gesture of tenderness. What a gesture of love. The hand once surrendered to the nails, now stooping to touch John. And instantly, John is revived. See, the power of Jesus, power in this world tends to put others down. Power in this world you know, puts others in their place. You, you are kept there because the power is his and not yours. But when Jesus' power is operated, his hand confers strength. It imparts power. He is the one who gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And some of us may be, even this morning, weary. And we know we're going back and we're weak. And this is your confidence. There is someone whose hand comes on you, placed on you. And his hand imparts power exactly to those sorts of people. And he speaks so graciously, doesn't he? Verse 17, do not be afraid. How often that refrain runs through the Bible. Do not be afraid. Now look at the world and you will fear. Look to yourself and you will fear. Read a newspaper and you may well fear. Look at the week ahead. You may well fear. Look to Jesus and you will find in him That's what I need to do. That's what you need to do every day. To be humble before Jesus. To be touched by his grace. And to hear his gracious word of encouragement. But you will not be touched by his grace. And hear his word of encouragement. Until you're on your face before him. Humbled by him. Tender mercy. Complete authority. See, then look what he says. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am. Just pause there. Because in, in the Greek, it's emphatic. I am. Of course, that's the great Old Testament name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am, I am who I am. There is nothing before him and there's nothing after him. He is the first and the last. There's nothing greater than him. There's nothing to rival him. He has authority over all time. See, past, present and future. I mean, just look in, in verse 19. Right then, what you have seen, past, what is now, present, what will take place, future. Just go back to the verse before our passage in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is present, who was, past, and who is to come, future. And wherever we are, you see, 
the Lord Jesus is Lord over that past, however damaged, over the present, however testing, over the future, however uncertain. He straddles time and eternity, and he is the master of it all. And the whole book of Revelation tells us that Jesus Christ is in control. Even when evil seems dominant, even when the great apostle is on a prison island, everything lies at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And he has authority not only over time, but of course incredibly significantly over death. Look in verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Was there ever a more triumphant assertion? See, what's wrong with our world? It is under the curse of God on sin. Man and woman fell into sin, and on that very day they died. Death entered the world, and death's crushing weight has rested on humanity ever since. Everyone, a hundred percent, we die, and we die, and we die. And the most vibrant and enthusiastic and lively personalities, they die too. Ever been to one of the great war cemeteries in northern France? There are these graves, more graves than you can take in, stretching to the horizon. And there are the young men who haven't moved since uh, the day they were struck down on the Somme or at Passchendaele or in the Normandy beaches. For all the advances in medical science, and all the anguish of those who loved them, it's not they who've returned to life, but the living who knew them, who joined them in death. But there is an empty tomb outside Jerusalem. See, that's the glory of it. There is an empty tomb outside Jerusalem. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Uh, and do you see what he's saying? He's not just saying he's a survivor. You know, we, we, we saw a wonderful picture, didn't we, earlier of a, an elderly gentleman uh, who, who was in the Congo and who, who was among others being shot and, and he pretended to be dead and they thought he was dead and, and, and he's alive. But, but I don't think he'd be saying, I am the living one. No, no, uh, he survived. He escaped death for the while. But you see, only Jesus can use this language. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. He is the conqueror of death. He has been there and unlocked the door. He is unquenchably alive. He's irreversibly alive. And he has the key. <laughs> Isn't that the most, one of the most wonderful statements in Scripture? You see, he releases us from death. I have some keys in my pocket. You probably have too. That will get you into my car. You could drive off in it. And that will get you into my house, and you could go through the front door. You see, the keys confer an authority of a sort. 
uh, Jesus has the authority that matters. He has the key to death. And he has the power and he will empty every grave and raise the dead. Some to face eternal judgment and others to enter eternal glory. He will undo. He has already undone death. And he will undo every manifestation of death. He will liberate the whole creation from the sentence of death and decay. He will set the whole created order free. A new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, where trees will do things you never believed possible, where you'll see flowers that haven't been cursed for the first time in your life. And you'll see, I think, things that will take our breath away that we could not imagine now because Jesus will undo every evil thing. He will make all things new. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. That's the one we worship. That's the one we rejoice in. He's the one who sends us out. He's the one who goes with us. And is he not sufficient for you? See, that's the rub to take your theology out of just, as it were, propositions that you affirm in church. Good and wonderful that that is. But to take those propositions and rub them into the reality of your life, into the wounds and the sores of this world that your Jesus reigns. And finally, he's utterly committed to his people. You see, where exactly did John see him? Well, we say he was on Patmos, wasn't he? Well, he's a bit more specific than that. You see, he, he turned, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, interestingly, the first thing he sees is he doesn't actually speak firstly of Jesus. He said, I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. And he even somehow has time to count them. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. That, that's very significant, that that's where the risen Jesus is found. He is among the lampstands. And we may be thinking, well, what on earth does that mean? Well, we don't have to guess, do we? Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. There's some uncertainty whether the reference to the angel is there of a human leader, such as a pastor, or may well be of an angelic uh, being with special responsibility for that church. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, but it, it, what is clear is that this is all to do with the local churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we're not talking abstract places. You see, they're named. And they're not named by John. They're named by Jesus. What's your church called? Chances are it's Emmanuel, like ours. Or Grace Church. It'd be a certain certain uh, kind of wave of what people call their churches. But whatever they're called, Jesus knows. Because he says, you see, send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I know where those churches are. I know them by name. And remarkably, this awesome Jesus, the, in a sense, we, we'd expect him to be on a throne. And of course, later we find that he is on the throne. These amazing 
pictures in Revelation are not meant to contradict each other. They stand together. He is on the throne. But it is so significant that here the risen Jesus is found among his churches, real churches, in real places. And the next two chapters are just full of letters to the seven churches. And however much or little we understand it, in Jewish writing, seven signified the whole. These seven typified the church of all time and all places. So here is a reference to the reality of Christ among the churches, and that includes the church you come from and the church you're part of building wherever God has put you. And in each of the letters, uh, take, for example, chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hands and so on and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Key word in every letter, verse 2, I know. I know, I know your deeds, your hard work, your person. But I know you can't tolerate. But he also knows the things that he's less happy about. But in every letter, verse 9, I, I know your affliction and your poverty. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Uh, uh, verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, and so on. Every church he speaks to, he knows. He knows intimately. He knows fully. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows the issues. He knows the people. He knows the opposition. He knows the strength. He knows the place, and he cares. And he's not just informed. I've been informed all sorts of places I never expect to go to. But Jesus is present there in all the places. And you see, we, we discover something quite remarkable. That the church is the top of his agenda. All over the world, God is building his church. With all its struggles and all its weaknesses, the local church is God's great agency to build his kingdom and to rescue men and women for glory. Charles Spurgeon called the local church the dearest place on earth. And if this risen Jesus is for us, who can be against us? And even in your situation, however tough it can be, and it can be. And over-assaulted it can be. And it is. And you read in the first century of the assaults on the church. The first century word. If you, if you feel 21st century Europe and the world is alarming. Uh, and indeed, there are many alarming things. Think of the first century. I mean, the Romans put the Lord Jesus to death. They executed Peter and Paul, and Nero, after the fire in Rome that he blamed on the Christians, lit his gardens with burning believers. And yet the message of revelation to those people in that generation and to us of every generation is Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. And when you see him, everything else looks different. I look different, the world looks different, the church looks different, life and death looks different, whatever circumstances you're going back to looks different when you see this, that at the center is, is Jesus. He is at the center. He's always at the center. 
let us fall on our faces before him. May we live, therefore, brothers and sisters, as men and women who know this God. All these accounts were written for us and for our encouragement. Paul says, God made his light shine on our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. May we serve him wholeheartedly as long as he gives us breath. May we take his gospel wherever he sends us, knowing that one day we too shall see with our own eyes, I and not another. And when we see him, Scripture says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to fall in worship before you, Lord Jesus, infinitely great and infinitely greater, wonderful and infinitely more wonderful than our imaginations can conceive. Lord, forgive us our dullness and our slowness and our small abilities to understand more fully. And yet, Lord, you've given us this very word so that we might see, even if it is from afar, that we might see the glory of Jesus even this morning and everything else might look different. We pray that we would go out with this vision, uh, stirring our hearts and our faith. Send us out, Lord, with, a, with these things in our hearts, written in our hearts in such a way that, that this week and this coming month and through the months ahead, we will never be able to get rid of this sense that Jesus is Lord and we may see it to be true for every situation we face and that he is sufficient for us. Lord, strengthen our faith and go with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.